0: You're listening to Why We Do What We Do.
1: A junior college student is sitting at a union cafe in UC Berkeley with his friend from microeconomics. His friend stares out the window in thought, and Ryan ultimately claims,
0: I think I'm socially liberal and fiscally
1: conservative. Time stops. Your cold brew latte falls out of your hand onto your avocado toast, and you question everything you thought you knew about this friend. I thought we agreed on everything. Doesn't he care about people? The homeless? Veterans? Immigrants? Ryan desperately tries to bring the conversation back and talk his way out.
0: I mean, this is just my interpretation of today's econ lesson. But I don't
1: even entertain the thought because I'm late for the protest against Ben Shapiro giving a talk. Somewhere across the country, a young Republican says to her mother while watching a debate,
0: You know, this Bernie has a point there. Society collapses.
1: <laughs> All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham.
0: And your co host, Ryan O. Welcome to your favorite consumable psychology podcast. I hope you enjoyed the intro.
1: So, just try to give a skit, I guess, of what we're going to be talking about today. And essentially, let's jump in with the, the fact. That many of you know that we think our opinions, uh, people, humans think their opinions are correct. They're well informed, and it's more comfortable to believe that we have a grasp on the world around us. We strive for that stability in our in our relationships, in our workplace, in our finances, and generally how we perceive the facts or the th- the information that we hear. Right, and so any disruption to the stability of that system threatens to dismantle our worldview, and thus we find ways to try and fight against it considering other possibilities and that that are contradictory to that worldview are uncomfortable and it can often feel like it's too much to handle.
0: And so this brings up some questions. Is true objectivity possible? What influences our opinions? Can you be a moderate? Could you actually strengthen your own argument by challenging it? And is civil discourse dead? I feel like I'm not the first person to ever say that. (laughs) It's like a a clickbait title, if anything. Right. (laughs)
1: It's what it's called, the civil discourse, Dad. And so, as I mentioned, we're talking about this concept of motivated reasoning, what that means, and why we do it, how we do it, things like that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Are you saying we're going to discuss why we do what we do today?
1: (laughs) (laughs) For the first time ever. (laughs) (laughs) And so we will try and define exactly what motivated reasoning is and explain the conditions under which this happens and sort of just how to understand it. And so. It's important I think to just begin with describing or giving our definition of our term here.
0: So motivated reasoning also referred to as motivated cognition is, I quote, a form of reasoning in which people access, construct and evaluate arguments in a biased fashion to arrive at or endorse a preferred conclusion.
1: Another definition I really like that I think also captures in an important way the details of this concept that we're tackling goes, quote motivated reasoning is the biased process we use to defend a position, ideology, or belief that we hold with emotional investment, end quote. And that last part there is especially important because we're going to talk about why we do this. And the emotional part of this and the invested part of this is where the name comes from with motivated reasoning, is that we're motivated emotionally or otherwise to defend a position that we have. So Essentially, this is the idea that we are reason our way through something because we have a vested interest in protecting that line of reasoning. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, 100%. So we had a, a 1950s experiment that we wanted folks to consider. Psychologists had students from two Ivy League schools watch clips of football in which there was officiating that was controversial in nature. The students were more likely to see the calls as correct when they favored their own team. I know that you don't really watch sports, sports ball at all there, Abraham, but this is 100% something that I see all the time when it comes to sports. And I have to admit that I would do this as well. Yeah. I try to be a little bit more like reasonable now and be like, yeah, that was messed up, but uh, we'll take it. (laughs) But yeah, this happens all over the place. And the rationale was that the emotional stake for school loyalty shaped their interpretation.
1: Yeah, and so as we describe and we get into this, we'll see that there are experiences and the position that we have with, that we bring to things like this based on the context, group of people that we are, that we believe that we belong to, our general understanding of things, our worldview, and essentially the consequences that we have faced, either positive or negative with those things, has shaped that to a point. And another important point here is that this is something that we all do this is just a human bias, a tendency to look for those things that are going to back up our preconceived beliefs or pre-held notions about things. It's common. Everybody's going to make this sort of bias in their judgment. And that's what's important here. And what we'll discuss is, I guess, some ways to avoid doing that as part of it, but also just understanding why we do it in the first place. And that It's not like a really bad thing that we do. It's understandable that people make these commitments to these statements because it's actually beneficial in a way uh, to do this.
0: As I say, the goal is to try to kind of identify when it's occurring and the boundaries of it, right?
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good way of, of putting it. So let's jump right into essentially what is generally talked about in psychology as why we engage in this motivated reasoning, and the foundation of this is this concept of cognitive dissonance, which we've talked about before. This idea, essentially, that we, when we are faced with inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, or attitudes, or information, things that challenge the beliefs that we have, especially things that are related to our decisions and our attitudes, things like that, that we then struggle with that new information. So, for example, if I were to argue very strongly with you that hand lotion is edible (laughs) initially the feeling that you might have is what is happening the other day actually i was at a starbucks going through the drive-thru because at the time that we're recording this couldn't go in (laughs) because there's a disease ravaging the planet the people that were working there decided to mess with us and after we'd ordered they said we're all out of cups is it okay if we give it to you on plates and I was so thrown by this that I was just, I just said, what did you just say? <laughs> <laughs> Thinking that I I just didn't even hear them correctly or something. It was hilarious. I loved it. I thought it was a really great joke. But the point being that it was so contradictory to what I was expecting that I had a hard time relating to initially. And that's that's not exactly what we're talking about with cognitive dissonance here, but it's related, this idea of like when you get that contradictory information, your initial reaction can be an emotional one, but it's definitely one of... There's something wrong here, and that's that dissonance part.
0: And this motivated reasoning leads people to confirm what they have already believed while ignoring contrary data. And these elaborate realizations to justify your holding beliefs that you already had, or like these logical disputes you may have, is what we're really interested here. And it's important for a few reasons— that we talked about on this podcast, we're always looking for a very parsimonious, simple answer, given that it, it actually answers what we're trying to investigate. And this can actually lead into a whole host of different things that we'll get into later when it comes to hoaxes or conspiracy theories.
1: Yeah, essentially, when faced with information, there are a lot of ways that you might react. And as you said, we'll talk a little bit more about those in detail. But one of the most common ways that you'll see is to dismiss it by assigning some other interpretation of it, like it being a conspiracy, that sort of thing. Now, social scientists believe that motivated reasoning is essentially driven by a, I guess, desire to avoid that cognitive dissonance, which is to say when we're faced with a contradictory evidence, we try and get out of that emotional feeling of this feels wrong or this doesn't, this challenges something that I believe to be true. And so there's sort of the self-delusion that goes on here where that uncomfortable feeling motivates people to defend a different position, even if it's incorrect or false or is not necessarily founded on anything, if they just had this opinion about something. And one thing we'll talk about more in a, uh, a little bit later as we get into this is that the stronger that opinion is, the more strongly they'll try and defend it.
0: And so the focus of motivated reasoning and political conflict rests in maintaining a valued identity in a pursuit of advancing one's own economic interests. And this is something that before we hit record, we were talking a bit about Abraham, and you were talking about why we probably have so much research looking into this specific example of it, right, in political identity and politics in general. Do you want to share on that again?
1: Yeah, I mean just essentially that most of the research that has looked at motivated reasoning has done so in the context of political topics and I'm not entirely sure why that that's the case, but I think that probably the reason is because it's is one of the most obvious where you have a position that what you might be arguing for on the basis of politics could shift very quickly from being something that's evidence-based and then you're defending that position to something that is an opinion where all of a sudden it becomes a moral judgment or it's sort of like, this is just right. Or this is just the way that I feel or whatever might be the case. And you can, and you can watch politicians from virtually any political background do that dance between I'm defending this position because it is objectively the correct position. And I'm defending this position because it is my opinion or it seems like the right way to go. And that is a good example of how motivated reasoning plays out in the research, because if you present someone with a piece of information that contradicts them on a fact-based piece of their platform versus an opinion-based piece of that platform, how they'll react to it and whether or not they'll credit that as being potentially accurate or not.
0: Yeah, so insert topics like climate change, HPV vaccine, welfare spending, tax cuts, There's stances on these and examples of this motivated reasoning sort of research and all of those equally as much as probably emotions and Facebook arguments as well. (laughs) Yeah. And so the outcome of our decisions are full of bias, as we had talked about, from emotional and instinctual influence is how it's usually talked about in places like psychology today. And particularly in Western culture, we actively try to preserve our self-regard for avoiding troubling information that contradicts a positive self-image.
1: I think that's actually probably true of many, if not most other nations in the world, is they tend to look at positive sort of views of the the culture and country they belong to, even if they are critical. They might think, like, well, this is still the best place that I could be or the best situation I could be in. I mean, I wouldn't want to be somewhere else. And I think that that's, that's probably fairly common. I don't know that that's unique to Western culture, but, you know, and especially you look at things like, Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin and how staunchly they'll defend their nation, their country, their politics, and their part of the world. And these politicians, again, going back to politics, but really anywhere, like they will absolutely promote a lie in the interest of protecting an image. Mm-hmm. And the point being that like, this is the hill to die on because this is the position that I'm going to defend regardless of any contradictory information and anything that is remotely positive, I'm going to accept blindly without any questioning or critical analysis of that information as long as it paints a good picture.
0: And so that brings us to the question of like, what are the mechanisms, the how is another way to think about this, of when motivated reasoning kicks in
1: we touched on this already but essentially again the point here is that the the more emotional this is and the more it threatens sort of how powerfully one feels about this the stronger the motivation is to reason that piece of information away okay and so there's there's an example of like let's say you invested a lot of money in this car and so this is there's this whole buyer's remorse thing but a lot of people who invest a lot of money in something, they tend to look for all of the evidence in the world that they can find to suggest that that was a good purchasing decision when it was a high amount of money, right? And so they don't want to admit that maybe this is a terrible thing to buy. I know I'm very guilty of this with <laughs> any anything <laughs> that I buy. That was a great purchase, and I'm going to ignore any data that indicates that it was not.
0: As you're saying that, I was looking at this $4,000 piece of equipment that I bought <laughs> for for recording some stuff that I've used like three times in the last six months, I'm <laughs> still justifying it. There you go. It was so, and I think I'm important. right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> of course you are. And if I try and argue with you, you're going to, you're going to fight me on it. But, but if you take something that's like a, a low value investment, like oh, I'm going to try this, this new type of coffee or this new type of beer or something, it's a couple of bucks. And so, the willingness to accept that that may not have been a good investment is it's less tangible, maybe or it's less intense. And so this just gets to the point of noticing like how invested are you in a topic? And I, I like this idea of money as sort of a metaphor or an analogy for emotional investment as well. The more emotionally invested you are in something, the more you're going to try and look for that evidence to suggest that your emotional position on it is correct and ignore those little pieces of evidence, or maybe gigantic pieces of evidence. That accrue to suggest that you're incorrect
0: this brings up past conversations of you and i when we're talking about things such as eating habits that we have that we differ on
1: <laughs> <laughs> we oh yes
0: i think <laughs>
1: y- you and i vary on a few a few things that we've had some very fun debates <laughs> with in the past
0: or another example we can look into is people in romantic relationships on the brink of a breakup They likely engage in this as well. They rationalize the extreme behavior as normal or justified in some sort of way, but it's that same behavior acting as a massive red flag that they should probably break it off.
1: Yeah, that's a good example too. And so there's essentially some categories of how you might look at the types of conclusions that exist in terms of what people will believe to be true, essentially. And so you might have something that's like, if that conclusion will bolster your self-esteem or your own sort of self-image, whether it will make the future more optimistic about a particular topic or that those conclusions are consistent with strongly held beliefs. And so there's, you know, we could give examples of those in terms of like let's go about optimistic about their future that someone who is doing something that's destructive such as a particular habit like smoking or drinking or drugs or alcohol or whatever it might be that they deny any evidence to suggest that that's bad for their health. They're like no 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 Drinking is very good for my health because it is because I, li- I like it. <laughs> and it helps
0: me relax, de-stress. That's right.
1: Exactly. And so I'm going to live longer because I'm relaxed
0: all the time. <laughs> or you cite that one person that made it to like 108 because they smoked 3 packs a day and you're like I don't yeah, yeah. know if that's exactly how the the evidence works. Exactly. That connection happened, but yeah, all of these are interesting. It's kind of like you're Trying to just justify without looking at the actual process of how these sort of things happen, right?
1: Yeah, and well, essentially that's your you are skipping ahead a bit, but essentially that <laughs> is the inoculation here, and I think the conversation that
0: foreshadowing, people, Oops. yeah,
1: <laughs> that we are going to have in terms of what do you do in the face of the fact that you are likely to engage in this motivated reasoning because you are a human being. And the conclusion you might draw from hearing this is, well, I just have to accept everything that I hear as being potentially valid, but that's a dangerous place to be. And I'd like to come back to that and discuss that a little bit further, but let's, let's instead talk a little bit more about how this works.
0: Skepticism plays a pretty big role. I can see for... Those that are listening in the background of Abraham's recording, we have the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Ding. This is not the first time that we've talked about this. I'm going to let you take on the skepticism part because I know just how much you enjoy it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the skepticism approach, I mean, that's, that's wrapped up in this entire topic. This is a topic that is well known to the skeptic movement because part of the skeptic movement is to identify the errors and human bias that we tend to make in judgment, especially Because where you see issues of people being non-skeptical, they are making these exact type of errors in cognition and bias, okay? And so essentially, people are likely to examine information that is consistent with their beliefs less critically than information that is inconsistent with their beliefs. They're going to be much more critical of that. And they're going to require less information, less support, less background checks, To verify their own opinion or thesis about something, right? And so statistics is such a good example of this, that people will use statistics in in a motivated way, again, because there is an investment emotionally or otherwise to protect a particular point of view. And so the look at evidence, even with small sample sizes, with insufficient data, with only one study having this position and use that as ammo to support the argument that they're trying to make. And it would take an enormous amount of data to contradict that opinion. And would they often just dismiss it as being you know, insufficient. And at the time that we're recording this and the height of the, the COVID-19 crisis that's going on in the world, in the United States, we do have one person who seems to be attempting to champion science and reason, Dr. Fauci.
0: Dr. Fauci, can we just give a second to... Yeah,
1: Yeah, round of applause for Dr. Fauci being a voice of reason in this nonsense that's going on here. Well, okay, the the example here is that he had mentioned that there was anecdotal evidence to support this one drug that was used to treat malaria as being potentially useful for alleviating symptoms of COVID-19. And I think that he was very articulate and correct in pointing out that there was not strong evidence, there was not clinical trials, there was not enough to really make that as a claim. He was just sort of saying like there has been some hope with this. Let's not jump into this with both feet just yet. And then the president of the United States, Donald Trump, jumped right in saying this is a promising thing. This is something that's going to treat this. We now have a cure. We can get back to our jobs and everything will be back to normal.
0: The government even started stockpiling it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and this has happened multiple times. People have now died because of claims like this that were made, where the second something is mentioned as having a potential preventative or curative effect on COVID-19, it sells out instantly. Mm-hmm. And vitamin C is another one. Like there has been a little bit of promising research to suggest that it might be helpful, but it's not conclusive enough to make any recommendations. That had it sell out instantly everywhere, can't get it. Yeah, and like we don't we don't know that it actually works, but the promise that it might was enough to have people doing this. And this is a dangerous place to be. So,
0: and it's it's important to note here that people are desperate to find a cure all for COVID nineteen or like we're, we're hungry for that information, right? But the leap in the that we can make as a result of these sort of things, these conclusions being drawn too quickly or statements being past the evidence that we have is kind of what's going on here. And further review just shows that that's not true yet. That's not where we're at. Um, there's a process. And I, I sometimes wonder if a silver lining of this down the road will be some people now have a general understanding of like what it actually takes to create these sort of things since we have to live through this, right? I mean, one could hope. (laughs) But even saying like, oh, you know, it could be 12 to 18 months for a vaccine. That's extremely fast, even though it sounds very slow. Yeah. like It usually takes the average of like five years when you're really going quickly with something like how they did with Ebola and such. I don't know, man. I guess we'll see in retrospect, right?
1: That's moving at essentially breakneck speed for the process of going through all the steps to really establish a firm base of evidence for something like that to show that it's both safe and effective. And so, yeah, I mean, essentially the point being here that there was so much motivation to believe information that and this ties back to the category thing we described as particular outcomes or pieces of information that are likely to be believed are one of them was optimism about the future. And this is an example of that, of like there's so much motivation to find something that makes us feel better about the situation that any piece of information could potentially be treated as oh, they just said this one chemical's name. This is now true, and I'm going to pursue this with all the money and time that I have. And so what happens is there's this motivated stereotyping that happens and this bias approach to just apply reason to things that only supports your opinion justly or unjustly. And in this case, mostly unjustly.
0: So next we're gonna pivot a little bit into like the negative effects that motivated reasoning may have. And so we brought this up earlier when we were talking about hoaxes or conspiracy theories. And there's some well-known extreme examples of where motivated reasoning can lead people to engage in this motivated reasoning and essentially backing up their claims when the information available just doesn't seem to support it. So when you look at the Apollo 11 moon landing being a potential hoax, climate change being a hoax or driven by other reasons, evolution, 9-11 being an inside job, Holocaust denial, vaccines and autism, which we have an entire in-depth piece coming out on in the future on this podcast, or even Barack Obama and where he was birthed, (laughs) right? There's there's just endless that we can go through.
1: Yeah. And and just to to paint essentially the context of what we're talking about here, this is the If you are motivated to have a position, let's just say, just because of that last one you mentioned, a conservative position, that is the left is bad, if that's the position you're taking, then any evidence to say this is why they're bad, essentially, you would be motivated to accept on its face value as being accurate. So to say that Barack Obama was not an American, was born in some other country, et cetera, et cetera, then that immediately is appealing to someone whose position is Barack Obama is bad. And the same is true on the other side of this. To say, essentially, if the, on the left, your position is Donald Trump is bad, well, then anything he says or does, the immediate interpretation of that is, if he said it, it's bad. Therefore, whatever that piece of information is, is bad, because he's bad, right?
0: You can see the the marriage it has with the confirmation bias there, right? Yes,
1: yes. That's exactly and that's exactly the point. Yeah. Is that whatever your motivation is, you're going to accept the information that supports that belief, which might mean that it's negative information because it paints something that you disagree with in a, in a bad light. It makes it look worse. And so you the in a motivated reasoning paradigm here. You are motivated to accept that as being accurate information versus something that says, this is something that, let's just go with the example we were just on, that Donald Trump did that was good. Then on the left, your reaction then might be, that can't be right. I can dismiss this or whatever because that's inconsistent with my worldview or my opinion, strongly held opinion, that Donald Trump is bad. Same thing on the right. Let's go to the climate change thing that you had mentioned is if you're motivated to have the position that, and this is the ironic thing here, climate change is not a political issue, but it's been turned into a political issue. And so if you support the agenda and not throwing anyone in particular under the bus, this is just speaking, if you were to look at the averages here, the averages are that the people on the right are more likely... Those of us that uh, belong to the right side of the spectrum versus the left side, those of us on the left, whatever, trying to not paint it us versus them. Yeah. Or like there's an in group, out group sort of thing. The people, those of us who belong to the right on average, are more likely to believe that climate change is either incorrect, is overstated, or is maybe even a good thing because we are motivated to accept any evidence. That supports that position because that is in line with the political agenda that has been put forward by the right, versus people on the left look for any information to support their position on climate change. And again, this is not a political issue, but it has been made a political issue. And the irony, I think, it's not really irony. It is interesting that that has happened with things that are even less political, like the coronavirus COVID 19 pandemic being treated as something that has anything at all to do with conservative or liberal when it absolutely does not. But it has been made that way because people on different sides of the political spectrum took an ideological stand about what to do about it, how to talk about it, et cetera. And all of a sudden it became this issue of politics when it was really just about A disease and that that is killing a lot of people and spreading very quickly and so that's you know what then happens is now now information that favors that political agenda you have whatever that might be you're likely to agree with that and disagree with any contradictory evidence not on the basis of science or the process by which that information was arrived at but by on the basis of how it relates to one's political views about it which is i think problematic from a practical standpoint of let's stop this pandemic, let's save lives, you know?
0: And so when Alan was doing the notes for this, this actually is a pretty good segue from what you were saying there. Abraham is, it brings up this topic of like alternative facts and like what's going on in that political nature. And there's been some research done that was summarized on an APA sort of blog post, I would say that that's in the show notes. And to quote one of the researchers there, Ditto, they said, it takes more information to make you believe something you don't want to believe in than something you do. And this kind of media in modern times, modern terms, might mean that a person is quick to share a political article on social media if it supports their beliefs, but it's more likely to fact check the story if it doesn't. I know I've engaged in this before. I try not to, but I know sometimes I'll, I'll see headlines, especially around what's going on in the world right now, and I'll be like, whoa, let's go to Snopes, see if Snopes has published anything on this, Yeah, or like dig into it that sort of way. As another example, similarly, people who had moral qualms about, say, capital punishment were less likely to believe it was an effective way to deter crime. So people blur the line between moral and factual judgments.
1: And that's supported by another study by Kahan, I think is how it's pronounced, in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology in 2015, that demonstrated that when there was evidence that supported someone's view But it wasn't about facts, then it became about morals. So essentially it was, you know, people use facts to support their position until the facts no longer are there, then they use morals. And instead of saying like, this is what the data showed, they'll say this is the right thing to do, right? And so there are people on both sides of this who argue, for example, policies about economics and what is the actual practical thing to do with things like taxes, with things like economic policy, with all of those types of discussions and there might be some science behind that. And so the position that someone might take will cite that evidence. And then the alternative position is to cite morality, right? When you don't have evidence, you turn to that. And there's there's a point in here that we haven't discussed a lot, which is another another reason that we do this. That's not just the whole thing of like, yeah, it contradicts and therefore we want to defend against it. But there's also this the opinions that we have that we form and that we develop, they came from somewhere, right? And so there's a little bit of a first come, first serve bias that happens here where it's like, okay, now that I have this opinion, this is my understanding of how things work. So when something comes along and challenges that, yeah, that might be uncomfortable, but it's also now inconsistent with your experience. And so going back to the example i given you way earlier of like hand lotion being edible, you're like, uh, everything in my life tells me that's not correct, you know? And so your initial reaction is to be like, that doesn't make sense. And honestly, that makes a lot of sense in terms of if you just think about how we were to go about operating in our world. If we were to treat every piece of incoming information as if it were equally valid as anything else that we might hear, then we would never be able to get anything accomplished, right? Because everything, no matter what we heard, it could just be true. And then we just shift on a dime and people could very easily exploit that to get you to believe things. And it actually if we we were to recommend that you treat everything as being that having the potential for be, to be true, people would immediately exploit that, to jump in and, and then try and spin their own narrative that pushes their agenda. And so it makes a lot of sense to say like we're going to weigh the evidence on the history that we have to determine whether or not something new that I've learned is in support of what I already think that I know. And what we know is not actually facts ever really, right? What we know is essentially aggregated information and that information could be based on evidence or not. And what the evidence is, the quality of the evidence is also of questionable position. Now, there's also this thing of like, whether it's new information that doesn't contradict anything because that new information, then we're relatively easy to just say, okay, that's the new information about this. And so if you have no basis, if I were to just tell you straight up, say, the country of Luxembourg has a better economy than the United States, who knows? Like, do you have any information about whether or not that's true?
0: Not at my disposal.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so you might just be like, okay, like, I don't think that Abraham says things that are just wrong off the cuff a lot. And like, that's just information. I don't have anything to contradict it. I'll just accept that as being potentially useful. Yeah. The more of that that accrues, the harder it's going to be for new information to contradict that. So if you hear it from me, then you hear it from someone else, then you read it on a blog, then you hear it in the news, then you hear it on a podcast. Now someone comes along and says, Luxembourg has the worst economy in the world. And they're going to be like, that doesn't make any sense because everything I've learned up to this point tells me that it's great. Mm -hmm. Everything that I've learned tells me that hand lotion is not edible and therefore I should not eat it. (laughs) And so like you're coming along telling me it is. And normally I would trust you, but that doesn't, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So mm-hmm. I think what's important to understand here is it's not just about the fact that it makes us uncomfortable to hear information that contradicts what we already know, but it also is very efficient for us to accept information that supports things that we have learned. And it's inefficient to just accept contradictory evidence, especially when we have a long history of believing in that thing. I think where it becomes particularly tricky is when the opinion that you have isn't based on any evidence, but is entirely emotional or reactive. And in that's the case where you're likely to believe something just because, and then staunchly defend that thing. And you can potentially make a lot of those errors. But that was an important part of understanding like, where that motivation comes from is also a place of practicality in terms of how we efficiently navigate our world. And that's why it's not necessarily wrong that we do this. It's just to understand that we want to be sure we don't let this get in the way of potentially learning. Does it make sense?
0: Yeah. No, fantastically said. Sweet. So let's shift into how we can uh, potentially alleviate this, that whole civil discourse topic.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think, yeah, that's one of them. And essentially, like... You might make the argument that to be objective means that you have to be willing to admit fault or error, and I think that that is part of it. You do need to be put yourself in a position where you can be okay with being wrong and changing your position. That's going to be part of it. That doesn't mean you have to do it every time or immediately upon hearing contradictory evidence. Just be open to the idea that you could change your opinion is a huge boost to preventing yourself from being locked into a position where you are... You are on the wrong side of history. You're fighting for something that's incorrect.
0: And dealing with this problem in a more civil way is often talked about as less talking and more listening. Maybe that's just more consuming or perspective taking. I feel like that's a nice short short version of it, right?
1: I agree. Yeah, completely. There's a lot
0: more to it than just that. And the conventional adversarial sort of way of communicating facts with this implication that the opponent is bad is often ineffective. It just it doesn't work. And I think this is something that many... To listen to this podcast, have probably ran into it various times. That's part of the reason that we are very careful and think about how we're communicating what we're communicating here. You should have seen this when you were talking earlier about how you're trying to make sure that there was no like us versus them, right? Right. And the way that you are phrasing things, it's imperative that we really focus on how we're framing things. And ultimately, that results in how the listener interprets things.
1: Treating this as both people on both sides are people and that they're not bad, they're just people. I think that is another way of thinking about how to get over this, or how to avoid being sucked into a rabbit hole of defending something that's wrong, is to acknowledge that you're a person capable of mistakes and capable of being right, and the person whom with whom you're disagreeing is also a person, and they might be profoundly one hundred percent wrong about their position, but they're not evil, they're not bad, they're not out to get you, probably. They are just a person and they are motivated by their own set of circumstances to take the position that they're taking. And so treating them with that kind of understanding and compassion, again, even if they are out there with some sort of insidious agenda, like we don't have to say that they're right or that we're going to accept everything that they say just to say that we are going to acknowledge that they are a person who has motivation to push their whatever argument they're making.
0: So, civil discourse is this timeless method that seems to increase the likelihood of reaching a compromise or clarifying some sort of misunderstanding. Now, one article that came up in research in this was by Vox, An Antidote to Politically Motivated Reasoning, in which Dan Kahan, that Yale law professor that Abraham mentioned earlier, suggests that despite popular belief, war evidence often doesn't act to persuade people across the aisle. This is a blow to the underlying assumption of democracy. Really interesting.
1: Yeah, and says, "quote The motivation to confirm is stronger than the motivation to be right." End quote. (laughs) And I think that's a very good way of saying it. That yeah, it's we we need to defend our position more than we need to be right about the position that we take sometimes.
0: And the the suggestion is that the antidote is curiosity, trying to teach people to be curious about where people are coming from, what evidence is out there, and I guess being willing to engage in this perspective taking, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a huge part of it, and probably a really good suggestion. He did a study where he was showing that people who were high in the curiosity towards science were less likely to show partisan bias in answering questions. So you had science-curious Republicans and Democrats were much closer in their responses to certain hot-button items or issues when they were broken down by science intelligence. They were essentially converging on the same sort of answer rather than moving apart. So yeah, these people who approach this with that science curiosity are more likely to seek out information that actually does contradict their group's beliefs, which is to say they're trying to learn as much as they can about a particular topic and be willing to accept that they might be wrong, right? And so regardless of what side that we fall on, the more curious people are, the more likely they are to read something that sparks that sort of skeptical response.
0: What I found was interesting in this is that they made sure to look at, like, you being curious doesn't have to correlate with, like, how smart you are, because oftentimes there's this bias of, like, science means I have to be smart or nerdy in some sort of way, right, engage in certain things, and it was really just the curiosity that they were trying to talk about, and he said specifically that there's more studies are always needed, but the science-curious people should always approach these new findings with a degree of skepticism, and they're trying to figure out, like, how do you teach that curiosity, I think, as a a large open door still that people are trying to figure out.
1: Yeah, you absolutely nailed it. And Kahan and uh, maybe pointed out that essentially we always need more research on things like this. And while we have talked about many topics for which I'm not sure that it really demands a lot more time and research on these sorts of things, this one has really broad implications where we end up in gridlock, not getting things accomplished because we disagree on things for which there is ample evidence to suggest that there is a pragmatic path to take that everyone will benefit from. But nevertheless, we get stuck because there's disagreement on both sides on many, many issues in politics. And I think some people see that gridlock as like people are inherently wrong. There is no right answer. we to get this right. Gridlock is good because it means that nothing gets done and that's where we want to be. And I think that's very cynical and not the approach that I would take. And maybe that's my own motivated reasoning. But I think it's a lot there's a lot of benefit to seeing what is the practical application of overcoming this motivated reasoning so that we can arrive at a solution that's going to have the biggest long-term benefit. Again, maybe I'm seeking information that supports my own opinion (laughs) here.
0: I think this has everybody listening, including both you and I, thinking about (laughs) where our motivation is right now. I think a final really important
1: note here on what can we do about this because as I mentioned, I think there might be the tendency here to say, okay, well, we recognize that this is a tendency we have and that's bad, which is something I'm, I'm trying to say. I don't think that it is bad. I think there's a practical reason to engage in motivated reasoning to a point, or at least to be willing to be understanding about the fact that we're, we're more likely to accept information that confirms what we already think that we're correct about. I think the curiosity is a really useful one, and the one that we would mentioned, and the civil discourse. And all of that. But I I think maybe some of the best advice that I've seen that came from the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe book and podcast generally speaking, is looking at the process by which that information was obtained and saying, was that a scientific process? Can we validate the sources and the process of information gathering that led to that result? And that is so it's removed enough from the emotional part of this. That if we can evaluate the process as being a valid one, then we can accept the results of that process. And there's always going to be this room for interpretation. And I think people point to science as like, oh, there's, there's these limitations that happen and therefore it's not valid. That's not like there is no such thing as a perfect scientific study because we can't control all the variables in the universe. We can only control certain parameters of things at a time. And so we always have to accept that there are things that we don't know and the conclusion of any study that's been done and that opinion of if we don't know 100% for sure then we just dismiss it all out of hand is so unproductive that it's just nonsense and so instead I think this opinion of let's look at the process and see if we can validate like was the information gathered in a way was the interpretation of that information done in such a way that we can reasonably believe that this is accurate and we can act on this information right And I think that's maybe the the major, one of the things that I would put in here, because if we can look at that and accept that as being correct, then nothing else is all that important in terms of whether or not we approach it in a way that we're uh, willing to accept it as true or not is going to be affected by that so tremendously that we don't have to make value judgments about it. That's essentially, I think, the position I'm taking.
0: I think that was really well said, Abraham, and it brings us back to what we talk about on this podcast. Oftentimes, when we're talking about these different concepts in psychology, and that is that this motivated reasoning or motivated cognition, as it's called, also is best understood as a description or characterization of a process and not an explanation in and of itself, period. Right? Like This is so important.
1: Yeah, I think that's great, and I think essentially what we have learned here is that there are a lot of processes going on in terms of why this happens, what's going on when we engage in motivated reasoning, and maybe the call to action to sort of end on here is be on the lookout for places where you are standing in the, your own way. You're getting in the way of being right. You're getting in the way of being practical. You're getting in the way of making progress on something because you, need to, you feel the need to defend a position that's essentially indefensible. Or you feel the need to support something where there's not really a good logical reason. And so you're putting yourself in a position to fail if you're unwilling to compromise on that. And I, you know, I, I think there's a lot that can be contributed to this from various domains of psychology. I think some of the, the research in cognitive psychology has already looked at some of the things in here, and there's a lot to be done there. Behavior analysis has not really touched on this, but I think they have a lot to say in particular about motivation and how one thing that's talked about in here is that With that whole cognitive dissonance thing, when we are able to rationalize our way out of that cognitive dissonance, the process that would be described by behaviorists is that we then feel relief toward that satisfying conclusion of feeling right, and that reinforces that behavior of reasoning our way through that thing. And so there's something important to understand about the behavioral process of how we sort of self-select those things by being reinforced by the outcome of being right and feeling good about that. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot to contribute from that field as well. And so I think, you know, those are sort of the the places to go in terms of where the research could be and what else we'd learn about this. Are we ready for take home
0: points? Yes, definitely. So motivated reasoning is the process in which the interpretation of stimuli or data are perceived in a way that supports a belief and ignores any contrary evidence, despite the credibility of that Or the actual trueness of it, let's say.
1: And going back to the point that I made, the validity of the process. Yes. Of it, yeah. And these elaborate rationalizations that people, that we as people engage in, arise as one fights the presence of that conflicting information or conflicting thoughts or emotions that we might feel.
0: And we should be pushing an alternative to this motivated reasoning by exercising what we call philosophical doubt. The questioning of the truthfulness and validity of all scientific theory and knowledge continually, indefinitely, we always are going to do this, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, the quest, the quest for knowledge and if we take that approach of curiosity, we might find the same relief satisfaction and that self-reinforcing effect to have that curiosity and find that curiosity to be satisfied rather than stick to the constraints of a particular group. Or party line, and so like if we just shift that feeling of relief to the problem of being curious, then we no longer find ourselves in a position of having to defend something that is not supported by <laughs> ample evidence. So yeah, <laughs> is that clear us on this one? I think we're we've covered. this I think topic. we're set.
0: Yeah, sweet. We have a, a big shout out that we have to do to Alan who prepped these notes. Alan, you're the man. Thank you. You dove in all over the place on this one, that was very clear.
1: (laughs) There was a lot of content here, which is super helpful because it allows us to be, to have basically a layer deep of information, you know, and a one more than what you actually get. So we take all of that and we're able to then turn it into the information that's the most useful to have, I think.
0: All right, and that brings us to recommendations, right? recommendations. Mine for you this week is what's called the behavioral vaccine. It's a podcast. Behavioral is spelt with IOU in that. A couple folks are looking at the interesting phenomenon going on as a result of the COVID-19 from all aspects. I believe this is a daily podcast right now that they're putting out. Whoa, that's a lot. Video and audio. They're shorter in nature. They're one of those, you know, 10 to 15 sort of things on average. But they're looking at everything from, you know, the what's going on with hand washing to the spread, perspectives of shortage of personal protective equipment, down to like, this is one of the, we're probably the largest, I'll use this kind of loosely, like behavioral intervention that we've experienced on a global scale, right? As to what's going on right now. So check it out. Really interesting. Super cool accents, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> like they've got the the information the quote personalities, but also there's just like layers of it that make it really interesting and fun. They're super, super short and quick too. Cool. I'm going to
1: recommend a tool that is for online work called BitPaper. And this is essentially, it's like a an online whiteboard sort of thing. You can have multiple people log on and you can have, so everybody is using it at the same time if you want. It has, I believe a component to have maybe have video going at the same time, either way. So yeah, paper is this really cool service. It was available at sort of a, I think, a free price that had access to certain tools and then you could like pay for upgraded tools. And a note on their website indicates that they've received an enormous amount of business in a very short period of time due to everyone sort of moving their lives online in response to the COVID-19. And so if you can get on there and support them financially, I think they really need it. But it is a really cool service overall, and so I'd recommend people who are looking for a place to have sort of a virtual whiteboard to use. It's a cool tool for that, so that would be my recommendation.
0: All right, sweet. Anything else to cover here?
1: I think that was it. Thank you so much for recording with me, Ryan. Thank you, everyone, who has listened to this so far. Thank you, Alan, for his fantastic notes. Thank you, Justin, for his audio production. And all of that and if you are engaging in motivated reasoning right now then we definitely want to hear about it if you have any stories or anything <laughs> you'd like to share about this or any other topic that we have recorded on or one that you'd like to hear or if you want to tell us how you heard about us or if you want to suggest a topic for the future all of those things are things that we love to hear you may reach <laughs> us on our email and all the social media platforms if you want to leave us a rating and review we always appreciate that and then we Love having people out on as Patreons. You can get access to additional episodes, videos of us sitting in our pajamas recording, and then episodes <laughs> that have no edits whatsoever. So all of the side discussion and cuts and things that we do, if that's something you're into,
0: the behind the scenes. All right, cool. With that said, this is Ryan O. This is Abraham. We're out.
2: You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at www.podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com.